Hello, my beautiful beans, and welcome to – you probably didn't even understand what I just said, but I said hello, my beautiful beans, and welcome to the episode of today. So today's episode, there's a lot that I really want to pack into this episode, but it is all about the concept that leaving someone is not giving up on someone. You're not throwing in the towel, and I want to talk about how to kind of tackle those emotions and how to know when is the right time to let go because I feel like a lot of people may stay in a relationship because they don't want to feel like they gave up too soon. They don't want to feel like they gave up on somebody when they made promises and they also don't want to be riddled with the guilt that they're feeling while in the relationship. So I'm going to be tackling all of this. I'm also going to give you a whole bunch of questions to ask yourself. I think one of the best ways to learn about where you are in a situation is to always ask yourself questions and wait for the answer to come from within. Wait for the real answer to come out, okay? So I am going to be giving you a whole bunch of questions to be asking yourself if you're in a situation where you're like, is this the right thing? I know I should I feel like I should be leaving. I feel like I'm giving up on this person. I don't want to feel like I'm throwing in the towel, all these things, okay? Then I'm going to go into a brain fact of the day and the brain fact of the day is going to be heavily linked to a listener question at the end of the episode. So all of the above coming in thick and fast. Life update, I don't really have a life update. I mean, there's always life updates, but there's not much right now going on. However, if you do have an iPhone. Unfortunately, I don't have any other phones at the moment like phone, but the there's some fucking epic phone cases coming out. So um, stay tuned on those phone cases for iPhones. Um, hopefully in the next like week or two, I think, but I'll be sharing it on the Facebook page. If you're not already a member of the Facebook page, it's do you fucking mind with Alexis Fernandez? You just got to answer some basic questions and then you're led into the group um, or follow DYFM podcast on Instagram or my account, Alexis Predators on Instagram, and you will find out all about these phone cases coming up. All right, that is all for my life update. Let's get straight into the brain fact. Okay, so the brain fact of today is about something called rejection-sensitive dysphoria. And the reason I'm talking about this brain fact is because at the end of this episode, I'm answering a question where someone is talking about being in a relationship with someone with RSD, which is rejection-sensitive dysphoria. So I'm going to explain exactly what it is um, and what are the ways of treating it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So rejection-sensitive dysphoria, RSD, dysphoria meaning difficult to bear, or it also means a strong pain or discomfort or overwhelming pain or discomfort. So someone called William Dodson coined this RSD and he what a lot of clinicians believe is that people with ADHD are most likely to have rejection sensitive dysphoria and it's described as the following an extreme emotional sensitivity and pain triggered by the perception that a person has been rejected or criticized by important people in their life or basically people that they deem to be important, like they hold at a high esteem. It may also be triggered by falling short or failing to meet their own high standards and others' expectations. So obviously no one likes being rejected. That's just innately in our nature. No one wants to be rejected. However, while no one likes the feeling of being rejected, for people with RSD, it is a lot more painful and it affects them and their lives a lot more than the general population. Now, before I get any further into it, it's important to note that it is not an official disorder. It is not in the DSM-5. It is 
not included as a legitimate official disorder. So a lot of people talk about it in conjunction with other things. And a lot of clinicians would argue that rejection-sensitive dysphoria is a part of ADHD. Others say that it's just got a high comorbidity with ADHD, but it's not included in the description of ADHD when you look at like what are the main things within ADHD because it doesn't change what is known about ADHD. So basically I was doing a bit of research on it and it turns out that while rejection-sensitive dysphoria is a thing, it's already described in other things. So we don't need a a brand new category to talk about what rejection-sensitive dysphoria is. And I'm going to explain why that is in a second, because when you you hear what I'm about to talk about, you'll understand that rejection-sensitive dysphoria actually falls into this category altogether. Now, they're also, because it's just a subset of something else that's already been described in the DSM, there's no empirical evidence around this. There's little to low scientific backing for it to be its own standalone disorder. So that's why it's included in other things. But it's pretty much based around the concept of emotional self-regulation or an inability to self-regulate your one's own emotions. And I thought it'd be important to talk about emotional self-regulation and the deficits in it, which is one of the cornerstones of understanding ADHD. And it is why most people who are believed to have rejection-sensitive dysphoria have ADHD as well because it's kind of – it goes hand in hand. And issues or problems with emotional self-regulation is something that people suffering from ADHD will have problems with in pretty much every case. So – Let's talk about what it is, what it looks like, and what it isn't. So people that suffer with emotional self-regulation or people that have problems with emotional self-regulation are going to have troubles controlling their own emotions on their own by themselves. So not having someone help them regulate it for them to do it themselves. So they struggle to inhibit or not display, so to stop displaying inappropriate behaviors around strong emotions. And this could be either negative or positive. So they basically struggle to suppress their response to an emotion, to a strong emotion. It could be a good thing. So for example, if someone's really excited and really happy and they have struggle and they struggle with emotional self-regulation, they might be really intense and not read the room and be really intense with other people and try and get them to be as excited as them and like ruckus other people and just not read that other people are like, relax, like, yes, we're happy, but calm down. And they just continue doing it and they can't regulate that intense high. And then when things are, when it's a negative emotion, they will spiral and really spiral and keep spiraling and spiraling and the negative thoughts lead, leads to another negative thought and they struggle to inhibit their reaction or their spiraling um, and then they might have inappropriate behaviors because of that. The next thing is that they struggle to soothe themselves when they cannot suppress these emotions. So because they can't suppress these emotions high or low, then the carry-on effect of that is that now they're in this heightened state and now they have to soothe themselves to bring themselves back down and it's really difficult for them to do so. They also struggle to move their attention away from the event or the stimulus that's caused this initial emotional response. So they will fixate on this one thing that's caused this initial emotional response. They can't divert their attention. Someone with good emotional self-regulation is able to like refocus or reshift their attention 
or purposely actively distract themselves from that stimulus in order to calm themselves down and start to feel better. So if you're someone that has good emotional self-regulation, you might hear something that's really pissed you off. Someone might have said a comment and you get really upset about it, but you think, you know what? Fucking take a big breath. I'm going to get up, have a glass of water, or I'm going to just play some solitaire on my phone just to calm down, or I'm going to, you know, turn, like put on a song and just, you know, and, and with, you know, there are these coping mechanisms that you have within reach that you automatically, without having to coach yourself into it, you just automatically will reach to because you are good at self-regulating. You understand when things are kind of peaking and you think, I need to talk myself down off this cliff. Let's calm down. Let's distract myself. Let's take my mind off it. And now I'm going to feel a little bit better. Someone who doesn't have that is going to continue to spiral and then get really negative thoughts and potentially start up an argument, potentially start to like press other people for answers and question them and, and get maybe potentially angry or, or abrasive with someone else. Another thing is that they will struggle to organize their emotions to help them achieve a long-term goal or an outcome that's going to serve them, whereas someone with good emotional self-regulation is able to do this relatively easily in the sense that they can understand when an emotion is not serving them and pretty much take the necessary steps to kind of shift their emotion or shift their energy. For example, if you're waking up and you're feeling absolutely shit every single morning, you're going to think, okay, why am I feeling shit? It's because I slept in for hours. It's because I didn't get outside the first thing. And I know that 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 really works for me when I get outside and I feel good. So they're able to look at their emotions and their feelings and see what's caused this. I need to change the behavior. And now I'm going to have a different emotion and then I'm going to feel better. So they can kind of see how these emotions add up to cause some sort of feeling. And if they change it, they're going to get a different result and it helps them achieve their goals long-term. Everything I just mentioned here with these issues with emotional self-regulation is like I mentioned before, one of the cornerstones of ADHD. So if you have ADHD, you might think, yep, tick, tick, tick. I really struggle to regulate these emotions. I find it really difficult. Okay. Um, so if you are someone who just agree or, or can resonate with everything I just said, there are a lot of things to help you get the tools to have emotional self-regulation. It just doesn't happen naturally. There's things like medication. There is one, a really, really successful thing is cognitive behavioral therapy where you work alongside a therapist and they give you specific tools for specific scenarios in your life. So you can put these tools into practice in those moments and then you see directly the benefit of this emotional self-regulation. So you learn when this happens, I have to do this. And at first it's clunky because you're not used to it and it's not your initial response to do something like that. But when you start putting these things into practice, you see, oh, wow, that really did calm me down. Wow, I'm actually able to, you know, impact how I'm feeling by changing my behaviors around these things or by changing where my focus is. So with everything I just mentioned as well, this is where in ADHD or rejection sensitive dysphoria, we see this low tolerance towards negative emotions. So this is what I mean about RSD not being its own standalone disorder because it already exists within the symptoms of ADHD and it already exists in the symptoms with emotional self-regulation and, and lack of emotional self-regulation. In both things, you see a low tolerance towards negative emotions. You've got inappropriate response to strong emotions, possibly angry or, or abrasive reactions to negative things, and you're more reactive and more excitable. So that's why I'm saying that while it's, it's a thing, it doesn't need to be its own standalone disorder in the DSM or in, in any criteria. So it ultimately comes down to this inability to inhibit 
these responses or to downregulate your responses. So that's why RSD is thought to have the same issues with emotional self-regulation, hence the feeling of dysphoria towards a negative feeling. And that's why a lot of professionals don't believe that we need RSD to be included in the DSM. They think another disorder does not need to be added because it just overlaps here, completely overlaps. The difference being, or, or the, the, the standout thing being that RSD is specific to rejection or falling short. And ADHD has deficiency in emotional self-regulation around strong emotions in general. However, that is all-encompassing and it includes RSD in it. It is a strong emotion. Rejection is a strong emotion and that is how you feel towards it. So that's all included in the DSM when you're explaining ADHD symptoms. So it's already covered. The concept's already been covered. It is also treated the same way as ADHD, medication, mindfulness practices, CBT as in cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, working alongside a therapist. So the, it's the exact same way to treat rejection-sensitive dysphoria as it is ADHD. And I was, I was um, watching this video of this doctor on YouTube and he was actually talking about RSD versus ADHD symptoms and things like that. And he says, the reason why you don't need that is because he made a really good point. And I'm going to butcher how he said it, but he goes, it's just too specific. And if you were to mention, as far as from a diagnostic perspective, it's fine to identify with it. Absolutely. But from a diagnostic perspective, the reason it doesn't exist as its own standalone disorder is because it's too specific. If someone had an issue, this is what he said. If someone had an issue trying to like get into a car and the car wasn't opening and then they really didn't react properly and they were beating down the car, you wouldn't have car sensitivity dysphoria, right? it would just be an emotional self-regulation deficit here. So that's what he's saying. He's like, you don't need to break it down to specific emotions because it's all included in that thing. That is why it is believed that people who identify with having rejection-sensitive dysphoria will have a big overlap with ADHD symptoms as well in a lot of cases. Good times. So that is the brain fact of today. I found that really, really interesting. I find a lot of the things that circle around ADHD very interesting because more and more adults are being diagnosed with ADHD and a lot of people are seeking to understand what it feels like and not only what it feels like, but what you can actually do to intervene. I think it's really important if you're someone that's always banging on without being diagnosed as someone who has ADHD, I think it is important that you try, if it's within your resources, to take the necessary steps to get a diagnosis because if you do and when you do, then you will be able to understand it deeper, understand yourself better, and you'll be able to start to access specific resources that are going to help you manage your ADHD and, you know, maximize your day and get more out of your day and your productivity. And you'll be able to kind of tailor a, a treatment plan that works best for you. And you'll feel a lot happier, a lot calmer, and you won't have these reactions to certain emotions that you feel that you can't control. Awesome. All right. Good times. Let's get straight into the topic of today's episode. Okay, so talking about the topic of today, I'm going to be talking about, I'm going to be breaking it down roughly into kind of two separate categories. So I'm talking about leaving someone where there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of problems where you kind of almost feel like trapped in a relationship because it's all bad, but they're not the ones pulling the pin and you feel like if you pull the pin, you're giving up, right? Um, so it's one-sided, it's toxic, etc. But I'm also going to be addressing situations where the person is a good person, but you just don't see them as your person for the foreseeable future or just in your life. And you're just not sure how to walk away and you feel like you owe them something 
and therefore you feel guilty. You feel like you are responsible for their feelings. You feel that you're going to be responsible for, you know, their life, trying to deal with it post-breakup, all those things. So you're like, I feel stuck. They're a great person, but how the fuck do I leave without feeling guilty, without feeling horrible, or without feeling like I've given up on this person, okay? So let's identify the problem here that you might be having. So the problem is you want to walk away from a relationship or you've wanted to do it for a while, but you feel that if you do, you'll be labeled as the person that gave up or you'll be riddled with guilt and you're not sure how you're going to manage those emotions from the fallout of that relationship. You don't want to be the one that walked away or the one that gave up when there was something left to give. Okay, so the first thing that I will be breaking down in this whole talk is the idea of joint problems and individual problems. So joint problems are problems where both people in the partnership can work on that problem together. So it's not to say that the problem has to directly involve both people, but it is something where both people can work on it together. Or for example, what I mean by that is if one person is really down and out, whether they're going through a really rough patch or whether they've just been fired or whether they've had something really difficult happen to them emotionally, that can be a joint problem in the sense that the partner is there to support them, whether it be emotionally, physically, financially. It's, it's you know, there's a lot of ebb and flow in relationships and you are a team. So that's what I mean by a joint problem. It's something where the partner's like, I'm able to step up and help you. It could also be a problem that involves both of you, for example, neither of you are good at communicating and you both have that same issue that when you try and discuss something, both of you fly off the handlebars and it's something that you understand that it is central to a a deficit in communication that both parties have. Okay. So that's an example of a joint problem. It's something that both people can work on it. Individual problems are things that only one person is able to work on it while the other is kind of waiting on the sidelines, hoping for that thing to change, but has no direct control over it no matter what they do. For example, if a partner is always displaying disrespectful behavior, manipulation, violence, control, cheating, acting inappropriately around other people that makes their partner feel extremely upset or uncomfortable, um, emotionally tapping out and just, you know, kind of hanging out in the relationship, hanging around, but not actually investing any time or emotion in the relationship. Okay. So there are things that couples can work together on. And there are things like the ones I just mentioned that technically only one person can work on. And that is their behaviors, their attitudes, all of that. So the things that are not within an individual's control or difficult to be within an individual's control means that it is the other person's individual problem, if that makes sense. Anything else is going to be a joint problem. So just to fucking land on this one, a partner dealing with a lot of stress because they've stress and grief because they've lost someone in their friendship group or their family and you being there to help them, to support them emotionally, maybe you're making sure that they're eating properly, you're cooking for them, maybe you're helping them out with whatever it is with their work or whatever. You're there to help pick up the pieces when your partner's life is falling apart or when the chips are down. That is a joint problem. That's something that you're like, I can contribute to help. While I can't directly help the exact situation, I'm here to help. I can do something about this. The your partner having an affair, that's a them problem. Your joint problem might be in communication and that could be something you could both work on, but someone taking action on or like actioning the behaviors for an affair 
or someone who's always texting other people or sliding into other people's DMs and behaving inappropriately in a way that they would never behave in front of you, that is only within that person's control. There is nothing you can do in this situation. So it is a them problem that affects you, okay? You can still work together to improve other aspects of your relationship, communication, etc., how you treat each other. But a partner who's always off being inappropriate and cheating, that's a them problem. And that is how they deal with dissatisfaction in the relationship. And that's completely up to them and there's not much that you can do about it. So you basically just have to either deal with it or not be in the relationship. That is how you differentiate the two. The same goes for someone who's always disrespecting their other partner, their partner in the relationship, you know, not getting help for your anger management problems when, you know, say you've asked your partner, hey, I think you should, you know, look into the fact that you've got anger management problems or you should look into some therapy or whatever. If your partner's refusing to do the work on an aspect of their personality that is hurtful to you um, or hurtful to the relationship, that is now a them problem. It's no longer a joint problem because there's nothing you can do about it. There's within the boundaries of healthy behaviors, there's nothing you can do about it. The only thing you can do about it is lie down and take it. And that's not within the boundaries of a healthy relationship. So there's nothing you can do in that regard, that will alleviate the situation. It is a them problem. It is an individual problem. Okay. So the reason I'm bringing up the point of joint problems and individual problems is because a lot of people think, oh my God, I had to work hard in the relationship. I had to fight for the relationship. But a lot of the time, this fighting in inverted commas for the relationship is one partner fucking up not being accountable for their own behaviors and then putting it on you when you leave saying you weren't there for me when the chips are down, you, you know, you, you bailed when it got hard. No cunt. No. If you're going to treat me like shit, if you're going to fuck around on me with other people, I have the option to stay, but I also have the option to leave. And you technically left me when the chips are down emotionally. Okay. So the only time that you know, even if it's a joint problem, you're always entitled to leave a relationship. But often people feel that they have to stay in a relationship because relationships are hard work and you've got to fight for it. But many people are left feeling guilty by their partner that they didn't fight for the relationship when it was an individual problem of their partners. Like the partners, they're fucking up, treating them like shit, disrespecting them. You then have enough. You're like, I'm out. I've had enough. And they're like, you didn't fight for this relationship. No, no, no. It is a individual problem. There was nothing I could do about it. No matter how, no matter how much I fought for this relationship, nothing would have changed. So it's this lie that a lot of emotionally manipulative or fearful or small-minded partners will throw at you as a manipulation tactic to get you to stay because people know innately that their partner is a good person. So they're like, how do I get you to feel guilty because I'm I'm pulling on your heartstrings because you're a good person and you don't want to be the one that abandons somebody. You don't want to be the one that's responsible for something breaking down. So I'm going to put this on you. Even though I'm the one who's fucked up again and again with my individual problems, something that you could have never had any control over, but I'm going to put it on you because you didn't fight for it. How could you have fought for it if it was an individual problem? Okay. The only time you can fight for something is if it's a joint problem and you're both working on that problem together. If one person is doing all the pulling, it's a tug of war and it's impossible. If two people are pushing, then you're getting more than double the effect. You're getting like tenfold the effect because two people are pushing and there's momentum and you can actually get somewhere. Now let's look at something slightly different. Um, If someone has, let's look at a drinking problem, for example. 
example. If someone has a drinking problem but owns it and says, I have a problem, I know it's affecting the relationship, can you help me help myself? You know, I'm going to put these parameters in place. Can you, you know, when you see me grabbing for a drink, can you say something? Can you, if possible, when the two of us are out, maybe we together don't drink on dates just so it's a little bit easier. You know, they ask you for assistance. Okay, that's awesome. The communication lines are open. Yes, it's there. It's, it is an individual problem, but it's something that the two of you can work on together to help each other. So then it can become a joint thing that you take on to help your partner out, okay? The opposite of that is your partner not acknowledging that they have a drinking problem and they fly off the rails and then they're, you know, they're useless for the next few days because they've absolutely written themselves off and they do this on repeat, repeat. They've got like maybe maybe it's a binge drinking thing. And you point it out and you say, look, I'm only saying this because I really want to help you. How can I help you help yourself? And they say, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. I don't need to change. I'm fine. Everyone drinks. It's normal. It's normal. Blah, 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 blah. And they, that's a them problem now because you've offered to help. You've said, hey, this is what I can help you in. This is the issue. I'm saying this is the issue. If they're like, no, fuck it. It's not an issue. I'm not changing. That's an individual problem. You now can't do anything because the only way you can help someone is you can help someone help themselves, but you can't change somebody. That is not possible. It's also not your job to always be picking up the pieces just because you are in a relationship with somebody. People will crack at one point. And if one person is always doing the heavy lifting, they will crack. Now, some people last longer than others, and some versions of cracking don't necessarily mean leaving the relationship. There are people that stay in miserable relationships for decades and decades, but their version of cracking means there's no longer any intimacy, whether it be emotional or physical. That's it. They're done. They've completely tapped out. Another version of cracking will be that the marriage ends up being this constant bickering, 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 where there's no you know, beautiful meeting together and having nice moments together. That's done. That's completely over. So sometimes people will stay in the relationship forever, but they've already cracked. Okay. So the definition of cracking doesn't mean that they would have had to leave the relationship. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to get you in a position where you start to understand that a lot of the feelings that you've been having around guilt of leaving the relationship for a lot of situations, maybe not for every situation, this isn't going to apply to every situation, but a lot of these feelings are really unfair feelings that you've put on yourself and unjustified feelings that you've put on yourself. Often we will carry so much unnecessary guilt and we will take on things that we are not actually responsible for, but we will call them our own responsibility. And because we think we're responsible for the success of the relationship, even though the other person might not be pulling the weight, we then think that if it breaks or if we leave, then it is our fault and we are at fault. And the reason I'm telling you all of this about joint problems, individual problems, all of that is for you to understand that in almost every case, when you leave a relationship, it's because something is no longer there that was there in the past or because there's been the introduction of really unhealthy behaviors that wasn't there at the start, okay? And so for you to leave 
is completely okay. But the reason people stay is because you're in this trap in your mind of absolute guilt and a feeling of responsibility and a feeling of letting the partner down, letting the relationship down, and it's all on your shoulders. And a lot of partners know this about you, so they will use this against you in order to make you stay. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. Now, you can pause after each question or you can just listen to all the questions and then the ones that ring through, rewind it and listen to it again, okay? But I want you to really, really think about these questions. Some questions are going to apply to you if you're in an unhealthy relationship. Some questions might not because you might be in a really healthy relationship, but hear them all out. Let's go. Number one, am I always making excuses for them and their behavior? Are the rules different for them versus for me? And that could be around who's responsible for what in the relationship, who's doing more of X versus Y. Is it acceptable for this person to be going out all the time but not for the other person? Is this person expected to take care of the children 24-7 and the other person swans in and is the fun parent? Like are there different rules? Would I feel comfortable asking of them what they expect of me? So there's many relationships where the household and parenting, for example, chores are completely skewed, completely skewed. And it is just a given that one parent, often the mother, will be doing more of the household chores and responsibilities and the emotional load of those things, like remembering when this is due, remembering this appointment, remembering this doctor's appointment and the parenting and then they're both working, okay, or even if they're not both working. Um, another example of this would be one partner has really strict expectations of how you should behave in front of other people or if you could be texting other people, people of, you know, a threatening gender. Um, I don't want you texting that guy or I don't want you texting those girls. Delete every girl on your Facebook or your Instagram. Who uses Facebook these days? I mean, except all of us that are on the Facebook group. Love that for us. But that's, you know – Am I comfortable asking of them what they expect of me? If the answer is yes, great. Am I dating this person for their potential or am I dating them for who they show up as every single day? Am I dating them for a past version of themselves that I no longer see, that no longer shows up, hoping it'll return, or am I dating them for who they are today? Am I the same person I was when we started dating? Are my needs still the same? And are these needs being met? Do I like myself when I'm around them or do I alter myself when I'm around them? Do I always know the person I'm going to talk to or am I nervous of which version it's going to be? And what I mean by that is a lot of people are dating quite volatile people and it starts off all great at the start of the relationship and this could potentially just be because it was the honeymoon period, it could be because they're a love bomber, it could be because you're both on the same page and now you're not. And then it could evolve into something where you're like, oh my God, I saw a glimpse of who they used to be, this is so exciting, oh my God, I'm all elated, I'm all excited. And then the next day it's like, oh God, I'm scared, they're going to get really angry at this, they're angry at me, they're pissed off, they saw something I did that they didn't like and and you're walking on eggshells. Am I riddled with guilt when I think about ending it? 
or genuine sadness for myself feeling like this amazing relationship or connection will be gone. So if you imagine, okay, I'm ending it. Hypothetically, I'm ending it. What do you think the feeling would be? For a lot of people, they're like, oh, I'd feel responsible. I'd feel guilty. I'd feel. But then if if you had a, a crystal ball and I could tell you, let's say you ended it and the person wasn't hurt, would you be relieved? Or would you be sad that it's ended? And that's going to give you a bit of an insight into your reasons for staying versus your reasons for leaving. If it's guilt-driven, then maybe you're not in the relationship for the right reasons. Maybe you're not staying in the relationship for the right reasons. If it was to end, would I feel relief, heartbreak, or both? What do I feel I owe this person and why do I feel that I owe them something? Do I like the idea of my partner more than the version of my partner when we spend time together? So often when you're not together, for a lot of people, they might think of all the good points of their partner. You get to pick and choose because it's in your head, it's in your imagination, so you get to be as picky as you want. So sometimes we'll pick out the best bits. We're like, oh, no, it's actually really good, it's actually great. And then when you actually sit down, there's no dialogue, there's no conversation. Maybe the things that you're picking on, like pick, picking out that you like are things that maybe don't happen anymore but used to. You know, you go on a date and you're like, oh, there's fucking nothing here. Like we are not – there's no throw and catch with conversation. There's nothing here. There's no – passion. There's no spontaneity. There's none of this. So when I'm away from them, I seem to love them more than when I'm spending time with them. Is it something like that? Do you omit information or lie to others about the quality of your relationship? And I'm not talking about airing your dirty laundry out. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you're having an issue within the relationship around communication or whatever, for you just to not address the issue at home, but then go and tell all your friends and family oh, in front of them, oh, they never do this, they never do that, they this, they that. You're just constantly nitpicking at them publicly. I'm not talking about that. I could do an entire episode on why that's so unhealthy. But I'm talking about are you pretending to your inner circle, oh, no, everything's great, everything's great, they're amazing, they're amazing, they treat me so well, and you're not actually opening up about your true feelings or your fears or your reservations or your concerns about the relationship. Are you afraid of, quote, unquote, breaking up the family? Now, I'm going to go into a little bit more depth on this concept of breaking up the family. And even if you don't have children, listen to this because it will prep you for things that might not be children related, but similar scenarios in your life. When it comes to breaking up the family, I actually have had quite a few people message me and tell me stories about their specific scenarios. And one story which has cropped up in a few different, obviously, versions, they're all unique, but the underlying theme is quite similar, is something that I want to share. So I'll just kind of bunch it into one individual story for the purpose of this episode. So this woman wrote in to me and she said that she's been with her partner for a while. They now have a couple of kids and once they had kids and even before that, the, the dynamic was very much expected that she would be taking care of the children completely. It would be her role to take care of the kids. And she kind of felt that she had to take on that role because she was the one that always really wanted the kids. Okay. So she kind of, 
not not forced him but was kind of encouraging, okay, let's have kids, let's try for kids. So she was like, well, I was kind of driving this thing to have kids. So she almost felt like they were more her responsibility than her husband's responsibility, which, by the way, that is not the case. If someone agrees to have children, they're agreeing to take on full parental responsibilities. So never, ever, ever, ever let someone throw in your face, you're the one that wanted them. If that's not a turnoff, if someone not taking responsibility for their own parental role, if that's not a turnoff, I don't know what is a turnoff. Nothing would turn me off more than Tyrone not stepping up into fatherhood when we have children. I would vomit in his face if he was like, but you wanted them more. Ooh. Anyway, let's move on. So they have the kids and it's completely her responsibility. So not only is she the one who's stopped working and she's at home with the kids. He's working and he works crazy hours. But on top of these crazy hours, he'll come home and say, oh, on the weekend, I'm going to go and do this with my friends. I'm going to, he doesn't ask. He announces, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And blah, 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 blah. He announces. And she's like, yeah, right. And then she always feels that, oh, if I want to go and do something with my friends, I've got to either find a way to bring the kids with me or I've got to find a way that he, like, ask him, do you mind taking care of the children? No, 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 no. It's so fucked. But that's what she does, okay? So she's got to ask him to take care of the kids. Anyway, so you can see what this dynamic is. It's 100% the parent parenting's on her. He'll probably swan and be the fun parent every now and then, which doesn't count, by the way, because any cunt can take on that role of the person that swans in and has a good time. That's the role of aunties and uncles, not the role of the other parent. Then it gets to a point where she's at cracking point. She's like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I, the romance is gone. I, I, I don't see you as I used to see you anymore. I'm my role has changed, your role has changed, our relationship has completely deteriorated as far as like this intimate romantic relationship. Now we're just like housemates that have kids. And she's spoken to him about this saying, I think I need to, I, I think I'm not happy in this relationship. I, I can't be in this relationship unless you change, unless you completely change your ways and you step up and I can start, you know, working again. We can share the load. This is, I can't do this anymore. And he says, if you leave, let it be known that you broke up this marriage. You broke up this family. If you leave, you're the one breaking up the family. So, Ask yourself this, who's actually, quote unquote, breaking up the family? And I'll say quote unquote for a reason, but who's breaking up the family here? Is it her by leaving or is it him by completely putting 100% of the parenting role on her, all the emotional load on her, all the house, housework load on her, completely changes the dynamic of the relationship versus before the children? Who's, who's fucked it here? You answer that question. Now, the first thing I want to say is, what does it mean to break up a family? A family is a family. As far as I'm concerned, no one died, right? So the family is there. You've got the kids and they've got their parents. When the parents aren't together, the family isn't broken, okay? If anything, the family is broken when one of the parents is broken because they have to stay in this unhealthy dynamic. That's what I call broken. I don't consider it a broken family when parents separate for the greater good of every single individual involved, including the children. Children, and this is backed by, I couldn't tell you how much science, because it's a fucking lot of science, a lot of studies, a lot of meta-analyses that are done, that children thrive 
in a household of love. That is it. A child's greatest need is to be loved, to be supported, and to feel safe. That is it. Love, support, and safety. Okay? Those are the key elements to children having high self-esteem and confidence moving forward and to have a really healthy attachment style and to feeling loved and safe and comfortable. So every study on attachment theory confirms this over and over and over again. So never feel like you owe it to your children to stay in an unhealthy marriage or to stay married to someone where there is no more love or constant bickering, attacking, character assassination or fighting or animosity. You owe it to yourself and your children to be happy. And if that can't happen in the household, then you don't owe it to your children to stay in that environment. Nobody wins when you are the martyr. Nobody wins. Not even the toxic husband in this scenario is winning because right now, short term, he is winning. He's getting what he's, he wants. He's getting his way. He's getting someone to completely raise his children without having to lift a finger. But he's losing out hard. Number one, because he's not present for the actual growing up of his children. And number two, because he, the children are going to be adults. He'll be, they'll be in their 20s or 30s and he'll be like, why don't, oh, why don't I have a bond with my kids? Why do they always go to their mum? And they'll be like that awkward loser who's always trying to like call their kids on their birthdays and like try to organise hanging out. And the kids are like, cunt, I don't want to hang out with you. Yes, you're my dad. I love you, but I, we don't have a relationship. Like, fuck off. And I've seen this. I've seen it in my friends. I've got many friends that are like, yeah, I love him because he's my dad, but he's like, I don't know the guy. So that's how he's losing out. No one wins when you are a martyr. So if you are in this situation, understand that you don't win, your children don't win, and children will be devastated initially when the parents divorce. That's completely natural because they're going through this transition phase and it's harder for children to regulate emotions than it is for adults. So that's totally understandable. But what's going to hurt a child more ultimately is exposure to an emotionally unstable household. You don't want your children feeling uncomfortable in their own home. Even if it's not emotional abuse, it's not great if everyone's feeling uncomfortable in their own household because there isn't this like healthy amount of love around. Okay. So if you're like, oh, I don't want to break up the front, there's enough reasons for you. Okay. Now, now, If you stay in a relationship because you're worried about what other people will think of you and what your partner will say about you and what you did and the rumors that will be spread, then that is one of the biggest red flags and indicators that you should be skirting out of this relationship immediately. If the only thing that's holding you back from breaking up with somebody is the fear of what will be said about you after the breakup or what your partner will say about you after the breakup, then there's your answer. Why else are you staying other than the fear of something instead of you being drawn into the relationship? It means also that you are with somebody that cares only to control you but not to actually love you because a healthy relationship should also equal a healthy breakup. An unhealthy relationship equals an unhealthy breakup. If you think, My partner is going to say all these lies about me, say this, say that. Leave. Let them have their fucking stab at you. Let them have the last laugh if that means for the rest of your life you having peace of mind not having to date that clown. 
You either have that where you leave and they spread shit about you and that's the last stab they get at you or you have an eternity with them. Pick your poison. And once you choose, your life is so much easier. Once you make that decision being like, I'll let you fucking have the last laugh. I need to get out of here. If I stay only because I don't want you spreading shit about me, then what does that mean about the rest of my future? And what does that mean about the person that I'm with? If they are only nice to you when you're together, they're not a nice person. Like there are people that I've dated in my past that I had this exact fear and I stayed in in two scenarios in my life. I stayed much longer than I wanted to because of the fear of the collateral damage once it broke up and how they would treat me and how they would say shit about me and all of that because of the way that they would accuse me of things and the way that they would talk down to me. However, now, I mean, knock on wood, love Tyrone, hope we don't break up. But I know for a fact that if Tyrone and I ever broke up, he would only ever have the nicest things to say about me because, and I know this for a fact, because I know how he speaks about his exes and he only ever has the kindest things to say about his past relationships. He's got very healthy ex-relationships and he speaks highly of them. So I'm like, you're just not a cunt. You're just a good person. So you should always think healthy relationship equals healthy breakup. Unhealthy relationship equals unhealthy breakup. If you are in an unhealthy relationship, expect the breakup to be unpleasant emotionally and as far as them taking stabs at you and whatever. Eat it, accept it, move on. Take that last stab and leave. It's better than staying with them. I can tell you that. Now, when it comes to guilt, remind yourself that you can – Well, you can, but ideally you never want to have guilt be the reason that you stay. Guilt for the children, guilt of breaking someone's heart, guilt of not doing enough for the relationship, especially when it was an individual problem and you thought it was a joint problem, guilt of hurting the extended families, guilt because you fear that others will think the worst of you. You are not brought into this world to emotionally serve other people and not emotionally serve yourself. I always talk about a value exchange and I want you to look at your relationship as a value exchange. The best relationships, not just romantically, but every relationship, the best ones are where there is a significant value exchange where both parties benefit and where both parties are enriched by the presence of the other person in their life. Now, you don't have to exchange the exact same thing. You could be giving more so in one area and the other person gives more so in another area. That's often how a lot of relationship value exchanges work. But you are both enriched mutually by the relationship. If this is not a value exchange right now, what are you doing? And there will be moments in your relationship where your partner's down and out and you're there to help them out. And there'll be moments in the relationship where you have nothing to give and you're down and out and they are there to help you out. But that is exactly what I mean about a value exchange, where you are there for each other and you bring each other up when the other one can't do it on their own. But when you feel that you're the one pulling this relationship along emotionally, where you're doing all the heavy lifting emotionally, where you're the one copying shit constantly because they're not self-aware and they're not accountable, how is that a value exchange? Where is your value? You're giving, you're taking shit, where's your value? What are you doing if this is not a value exchange? Ask yourself that and ask yourself about that question about every relationship in your life. Work, friends, 
relationships, romantic relationships, okay? This goes for every single relationship where two people are deciding to enter a relationship together, okay? Friends, romantic, whatever. I also want you to stop beating down on yourself. Sometimes the hardest part is just making the call, okay? Everything else, while not easy, is going to feel a whole lot lighter once the decision is made. I think, and this is not just for breakups and not just for feeling that, you know, you're stuck in this situation, but I think for a lot of people, the idea of worst case scenario and how difficult it's going to be is often more intense and terrifying than going through the motions and doing that thing. Because once you're there, once you've arrived at that place that you've always feared, you're too busy trying to make everything work and thinking about other things. And there's good things that happen as well alongside the bad things. And it's not as painful or is not as unbearable as you thought. And you might think that you can't get through it, but you do get through it. Okay. So sometimes it's just making the call, making the decision and following through. But I hope that this episode made you realize that leaving someone is not giving up. You are entitled to leave and often the other person has quote unquote given up well before you did and expected you to do all the work to get it back to where it was, which is impossible. You cannot you cannot force someone to change. You can only change alongside somebody else and at most encourage somebody, at most. And then you're made to feel, because you're the one pulling the pin, you're made to feel that you are responsible for this thing and you're the one that walked away. But often people walk away emotionally from something well before they do it physically because they're too piss-weak, scared, little weak bitches, and they can't pull the pin. So they grind you down into the ground to get you to pull the pin because they don't have they don't have the gall to do it themselves. So not only are they weak, but then they're accusing you of being the one that ended it when they ended it emotionally a long time ago. So don't be manipulated. If you're in that position, not everyone is, but if you are, don't be manipulated into thinking, oh my God, I have to stay because if I pull the pin, I'm the one that ended it. No, no. Pay attention to your partner's behaviors and think how many of these behaviors are indicators that they've emotionally tapped out and they're expecting me to either fix it or leave. And they just want to sit on their ass and watch it all unfold and not take any responsibility and not do any of the hard emotional heavy lifting. Okay? So remind yourself of these things. Re-listen to this episode whenever you're really thinking, can I leave? Can I walk away? Do I have the strength? Am I feeling the right feelings? You are entitled to walk away. You're entitled to walk away whenever you want, but you should certainly not be walking away with feelings of guilt when you do not deserve to be feeling guilty, okay? Thank you so much for listening. It is now time for the listener question. Hi, Alexis. I enjoy your podcast. Thank you for creating and sharing. I have a question more broadly on how to find balance in a relationship when your partner has overwhelming anxiety, which is diagnosed, and some symptoms of rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which is what I spoke about in The Brain Fact. I struggle while trying to juggle the fallout when basic misunderstandings happen or more frequent arguments occur because of their mental health. They are aware of their battles with anxiety, but sometimes they lack the awareness and understanding that the other half of the relationship is trying in real time to analyze and keep up. 
the other half is not going to handle the difficult situation perfectly. If you could speak to that, I think a lot of listeners are in relationships where they love the other but struggle to ask for grace or don't know how. This leads to more internalized frustration when they do make an error in approach which feels which feeds into an unhealthy dynamic. This is not fair to either person. My sister and I are listening. Thanks again. Thank you so much for writing in. Okay, so I did that whole brain fact on rejection-sensitive dysphoria, which falls into emotional self-regulation. So everything I explained as emotional self-regulation or deficits in emotional self-regulation will describe what someone feels like in rejection-sensitive dysphoria or with rejection-sensitive dysphoria, I should say. So now that you have a good understanding of what that is, what it looks like, and what the person who's experienced it is feeling, then you can understand that they are having issues regulating it. It doesn't come naturally, which obviously you are very understanding. You're just trying to find a way to deal with it. I think the number one thing here is to be talking about this not in the heat of the moment. And I talk, I say this with any kind of situation with a partner. Whenever there's an issue with your partner, whenever possible, you then want to try, if it's an ongoing issue or something that crops up often or more than once, you want to raise it calmly, not when it's happening, but when you're both calm and you can have a good conversation. Because that is when you speak to your partner and you say, when things get heated or when you presume something off me, your reaction becomes X and then I can no longer explain myself because you've already gone down that path and you're already starting to spiral. I want to be able to discuss these things. However, it's not something that can easily be done in the moment when your emotions are heightened or when you know, you're thinking one thing and you're not saying it the way I'm saying it or I'm not saying it the way you're saying it. So it's really important to talk about this not in relation to a specific moment when they are feeling heightened at the time. Then you want to talk about coping mechanisms or tools. I think that for people that struggle to regulate their emotions then and there in the moment, I think it's really good to try and allow a bit of a timeout moment. But talk about it before you do the timeout moment because they don't want to feel more rejected. So what you could say is, you know, when we're having an argument or when you think something's happened and you're feeling anxious – how about I give you some space? How about, you know, I just give you a moment to think about it. And instead of saying like, leave the room, I'll leave you alone, just say, I will give you space. Okay. So you want that person to feel comfortable to have their time, whether in private or it could be around you, but maybe on their own to calm themselves down. And because sometimes when someone has issues with emotional self-regulation they'll keep going and going and going and going and the other person will start to feel attacked and they may attack back even though they don't have this dysregulation or issues with emotional self-regulation so then it gets heated and it gets fired up and you end up having an argument where that it never needed to happen okay so I think creating some space and giving the person time to process even in in the moment they're like I don't need time I don't need time to say I want to give you time to process it I want to discuss this later. Okay. Another thing that you could offer is to say to them, when it reaches a point where we're talking to each other like this, or where you've accused me of this, or I've accused you of that, I think the best thing to do is to write down how we feel and then approach it in a couple of hours or in an hour or whatever. Because the main key takeaway thing here is separate to your partner actually getting some cognitive behavior therapy and working alongside a therapist to deal with coping mechanisms because that's absolutely what they should be doing if possible. 
you want to be coming up with a game plan every time there's a, like you said, a basic misunderstanding, okay? There's going to be more and more and more arguments when your partner misunderstands you because they have issues with emotional self-regulation. So all of us misunderstand someone, but someone who's got really good emotional self-regulation will automatically be like, benefit of the doubt, maybe they meant this. And then they'll kind of play the devil's advocate. They'll look at it from two sides and be like, all right, I'll I'll fucking let them keep talking. They probably meant it this way. It could have been this way. And they'll, you know, have a really broad opinion. Someone who doesn't have that is going to be like, what the fuck did they just say? What the fuck did they just do? And then it'll start to spiral and spiral and they don't have the ability in the moment to intercept being like, they could have meant this. Oh, I probably misunderstood them. So while they're able to do that later, in the moment, it's too heightened and it's not happening for them, okay? So I think it's really important to, to understand where how their mind is operating and realize that continuing to engage in that moment is going to be helpful for nobody. So that's when you want to say, all right, we're not understanding each other because you don't want to put it all on them, but just be like, there's a misunderstanding here. Let's fucking take a time out. Let's... I want you to write down what you think genuinely without character assassinating. I want you to write down what you think I meant and then I'll be able to clarify if that's the case or not, okay? And I think it's really, really important, again, talk about this not when it's happening because the moment it's happening, it's already too heightened. There's more of a misunderstanding and then an argument is going to occur. Hopefully that helped you, but I do think it's important for your partner to be ideally trying to look into some cognitive behavioral therapy tools because that's when they start to feel heightened and rejected or that there's a misunderstanding and then when it's leading towards an argument they'll be able to intercept their own thoughts with the tools that a therapist has given them okay and that's something that unfortunately I can't be able to help with specifically because it is case by case dependent and it has to be done alongside a clinician, which I am not, but that would be, in my opinion, the best way to go about it. Thank you so much for writing in. Thank you for bringing up rejection-sensitive dysphoria. I'm really glad I got to talk about it and talk about emotional self-regulation because I think it's really important. And if you are someone that suffers with that, hopefully that did strike a chord and you're like, that is me. I understand it a bit more. Or if you're someone that has someone who has RSD or Um, issues with emotional self-regulation. It's helped you to understand that person better. Good times. So that is the episode for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. I love you guys so much. And as always, remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.